Good morning, Rogers Park. Good morning, Rogers Park. It is good to be up here preaching God's word to you this morning. My name is Phil Adams. I might get to serve. It's a privilege, a joy um, to serve as on, on the pastoral team here in our network in uh, Rogers Park, mainly over in West Rogers, West Rogers Park, but also here in the teaching team in South Rogers Park. I uh, just want to thank you even this morning. I came in this morning feeling the, the weight of this passage this morning. Um, and just by your, your prayers in the prayer meeting, just talking to you guys at the back, Thank you for your encouragements. God uses your words of encouragement. He uses your prayers here on a Sunday morning um, to, to, to um, build us up. And for those preaching, we just, we just want to thank you for that. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to read from Romans chapter 6 in a few moments. Did anyone wake up this morning and just feel maybe like they looked out the window or they were driving the car and they just felt a sense of joy? <laughs> A sense of, yes, sense of energy in your soul. Because actually, does anybody know, this, this week Chicago broke a 25-year record. Do people know that? Ten successive days of full cloud coverage in a row. The longest in 25 years. Now you're, you're like, oh, that makes sense. That's what that was. <laughs> Bernard Williams, a British philosopher, he said this, and bear in mind, there's a lot more cloudy days in the UK. I was like 25 years to get 10 days. In Ireland, that's like, that's like we got like two months. He says this, the day God created spring was probably the same day he created hope. Spring is a universal metaphor for hope. When the days start to get a little bit longer, the, the, the icicles begin to drip a little bit, the grip of winter loosens, the snow begins to sink, green grass begins peeking through, buds start to grow. Soon we're going to see blossoms, the sun begins to shine, and we walk through or drive here through the newness of life. That's what Romans chapter 6 is about, what we're going to look at today. It's about transformation, It's about a a thawing. It's about the sun beginning to shine in our hearts, allowing us to walk in the freshness of a new life with with new abilities. Let's read all of Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized with Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in an order that just by Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we live that we might also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of the sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have been obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you'll get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, we come before you, God, as your body, as your people. And God, we present ourselves, God, with open hearts, God, longing, thirsting after your voice in our lives, God. So speak, God, I pray. God, make our hearts tender to your spirit. God, may we listen to you. God, may we leave today changed by you. God, you are a God that takes the old and brings the new. You're a God that takes the dead and gives life. So do that today, we pray in your name. Amen. Our passage this week, it, it, it starts with a question. We've had five chapters. We're going through the book of Romans, and we've had cha- five chapters of the Apostle Paul argue that we are saved through faith. We are saved through belief in God's grace alone. That salvation, acceptance before God is through faith alone in the finished work of Christ. And now we get to chapter 6, verse 1, and it opens up with a question. If acceptance, justification, right standing before God is given to us as a free gift through faith alone, and our acceptance before God isn't earned, if it isn't earned through our good works, what's stopping us just doing whatever we want? I know I'm saved, so does it really matter if I enjoy a little fill-in-the-blank? Or even closer to the tone of chapter 6, you can't preach salvation is a free gift, and all people all have to do is trust in Jesus, that Jesus did it all, because what will then restrain people from, from doing anything and everything? Preaching acceptance before God through grace alone will cause moral chaos in the church as people go on sin-filled spending sprees, flashing the credit card of God's grace as their unlimited alliance. Rogers Park, if we preach acceptance before God is a free gift by grace alone, what, what will be left to compel us to live lives of holiness? to pursue holiness, to be intentional with holiness. Paul Paul goes on to answer this question in Romans chapter 6. And he says, when you think like that, 
where, when our understanding of God's grace is that it's a free pass to sin, we've misunderstood what Christ has done for us, we've misunderstood what he's doing in us, and he, we have misunderstood what he is preparing for us. There are two wrong responses to God's saving grace. One is a little more commonly known. It gets battered about a little bit in church circles. It's called legalism. We like to call it out. Legalism. What legalism is not is your friend who makes you feel uncomfortable in their striving for holiness. But what legalism is, is functioning in such a manner where you're keeping certain works in the mix for earning your salvation. Legalism births out of pride. It creates more pride and it flows from a heart that demands credit for God's work of salvation. Legalism is functioning in such a manner where you're keeping certain works in the mix for earning your salvation. The other wrong response to God's saving grace is called something that's rarely mentioned in the church, anti-pneumonianism. It's hard, okay? That's why it's not mentioned. We won't do that again. We won't, we won't say it again, which, which comes from the Greek word antinomos, meaning anti-law. Antinomians don't like the law. It's simply the idea that good works don't really matter in the life of believer. God's saving grace does not really require a response, a change. Good works can be take it or leave it in the life of a Christian. And I'm going to guess that most of us on paper, would be able to say that they don't agree with that. They think that good works should be part of a Christian's life, but there is also such a thing as practical antinomianism. And we all can slip here. It's when we believe increased Christ-likeness and increased obedience to God's commands should be evident in the life of a Christ follower, but right now, it's just not a high priority. Practical antinomianism is when we say, I should be fighting sin. I should be fighting sin. Intentionally striving for, for Christ-likeness, but I'm not, and it's okay right now. I think, and I think one of the problems is that we, we all can, can get so busy in life, including church life, that we forget Jesus' heart for us is not just to see us saved with a get-out-of-jail-free card, but to see us presented blameless and perfect before God. That's Christ's desire for us. That's his heart for us. That's why he died for us. Christ's likeness is his priority in our lives. One of the most prominent places where we can see what Christ-likeness looks like is when we read Christ's own words in the Sermon on the Mount. And here we see this radical call that God has on our lives. Listen to these verses. Matthew five twenty one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
Matthew 5, 38, you have heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right, turn to him the other also. Matthew 5, 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew seven twelve. so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That is the radical life that we are called to. And maybe if you are like me, you sometimes settle for a kind of lingering guilt or we read through our Bibles and some pages flick a little faster. (laughs) That's why some people's Bibles look used more than others. (laughs) Or we rationalize holiness. Oh, Jesus didn't really mean that. Or maybe there's just one area in your life that you've, you've just given up on. I've tried to kill that sin. It didn't work. It's just going to linger. It's just going to be there. But thank goodness for God's grace. My desire this morning is to compel us back into the fight. To wake us up. By reminding us and reminding me that growing and beautiful, Christ-like character is possible. And it is joyously worthy of pursuit. Are you with me? Okay, let's go. Romans chapter 6. Paul's succinct answer in sharing why continuing in sin after becoming a follower of Christ makes no sense is in verse 2 where he says this. How can we who have died to sin, sin still live in it? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? In it, why would we continue to walk in winter when spring has come? The phrase, died to sin, means that something has objectively happened in our lives. Past tense. Something has happened to me, something has happened to you. Something has been done to me, something has been done to you. And we see it throughout these verses. Verse 2, we have died. Verse 4, we have been buried. Verse 6, our old selves were crucified. Something colossal, something groundbreaking and earth-shattering and yet unseen to the naked eye has happened in the life of every believer. So what's happened? First, or Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul, he speaks about a dominion of darkness. And it's similar to the language that we read here in Romans chapter 6 where Paul speaks about sin and death as agents of power in the world. Verse 6 refers to sin enslaving. Verse 9, he refers to death having dominion. Verse 12, he refers to sin reigning. Lynn share, Lee, Lynn, Lee shared this last week, how sin entered the world through Adam. 
And since entering the world, sin has enslaved, sin has reigned over, had dominion over humanity. What this means is that prior to knowing Jesus, no matter how hard we tried, our lives were stuck in a cycle of sin. Even efforts for good weren't efforts for God's glory. No traction was possible that would move us towards God. Sin reigned over our lives. It held us back. It chained us down. And it held us away from God. And to be chained in the mud of sin is a miserable place to be. Because sin is a brutal master. This is what Paul's teaching. Sin is a brutal master. Sin is never pleased with us. Sin is never satisfied by us. Sin never lets us rest. Oh yeah, this is the last time. No more after this time. Agreed. But sin always comes back for more. Sin whispers in our ears and tricks us into thinking that disobedience to God's law will help us when sin knows the whole time that it's just going to hinder us. Go on, you should be angry. You should give them a piece of your mind. You'll look strong. You should stand up for yourself. All the while, sin is laughing behind our backs, waiting for us to look foolish and out of control, ready to hurt ourselves and hurt others. Sin hates you. Pornography hates you. It wants nothing good for you. Sin, as a master, only deposits destruction into our lives as payment for our service. Verse 23, for the wages of sin, what it gives us, what we earn from it, is death, destruction. Sin always takes us deeper into sin. Verse 19, lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. I'll just text her. Yeah, just text her. I'll, I'll just go and talk to him. His wife isn't with him today. Yeah, I'll just go talk to him. Sin always takes us deeper. And maybe worse of all, sin tells us, go for it. It's, it's not a big deal. And then when we do the moment, we have done it. Sin taunts us and tells us that we are weak and we are worthless and we are condemned. Northside Virgins Park, sin is a brutal master. And maybe war. And without the power of the gospel, trying to get away is like being chained to a wall, spinning our wheels. And yet, that is not the story for followers of Christ. Because something colossal, groundbreaking, earth-shattering has happened in the life of every believer. The heart of our passage this morning is verse 5 of chapter 6, where it says, If we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Paul wants us to understand our present circumstance today by looking back at what's happened and look forward to what is to come. And in looking back, Paul is talking about a mystery, which I've already mentioned. Verse 2, we have died. Verse 4, we have been buried. Verse 6, our old selves were crucified. Paul is saying that all 
of sins, condemnation, all of sins. Hatred towards us was unleashed on Christ on the cross. But hear this in mystery, in wonder. When Jesus died on the cross, we were there in him. We died there as well. We were in Christ, united to him when he bore our sins. Mystically and mysteriously, Jesus didn't just die in our place. Every follower of Christ in union with him died there as well. That's why it says in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified. That's why throughout the Bible we see people encounter God and they lose their names. Abraham is no, Abram is no longer Abram. Jacob is no longer Jacob. Saul is no longer Saul. The moment that we become followers of Christ, there is a death and then new life is born. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Saul becomes Paul. We become new creations in Christ. That is why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. What I want you to see this morning is that you, maybe you haven't thought about this in a while, you are not the same person you were before coming to know Jesus. You are not today the same person that you were before coming to know Jesus. Think about that. Remind yourself. Verse 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified. That old person united to Christ bore the wrath of God for our sin. That person who was chained to the wall of sin, spinning in a cycle of sin, unable to get traction. That old person is dead. But as Christ rose from the dead, we too, verse 4, walk in the newness of new life. Here are two key truths regarding this new life in Christ. Just as we died in Christ, we now live in Christ. Colossians 3 says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. In your new life, because you're united to Christ, hidden in Christ, everything Jesus has done is now legally true of you. God the Father loves you, delights in you, accepts you, and sees you as having all the beauty, all of the greatness, all of the glory of his Son. There is now no condemnation, simply full acceptance, full forgiveness, sins removed as far as the east is from the west. That is God's heart towards you today in Christ. That will be God's heart towards you for all eternity. God the Father loves you. He delights in you. He accepts you. He sees you having all of the beauty and the greatness and the glory of his son. That's your new life. That's who you are today. We are now hidden in Christ. The second key truth regarding our new life in Christ is in verse 5. If we have been united with Christ in a death like his and died, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Paul is saying that in the moment of our conversion, in our new life, we are not only united with Christ in regards to receiving God's love and acceptance, we are also at the moment of our conversion in our new life, we begin immediately to share in the resurrection power that rose Jesus from the dead. Immediately. Let me explain this, because this is what this whole sermon centers around. And this is incredible, okay? Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. Jesus uses another really hard to use word, but it's Greek this time, polygenesia. <laughs> and it's a word that refers to the renewal of all things. 
Much like in, in Hinduism, they believe that there is, time is circular, the world will continually be renewed and made new again over and over. But when Jesus uses the word, he refers to the renewal of all things. Jesus says that all of history is moving to one, towards one point in time. Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. At the renewal of all things, at the Palagenesia, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, everyone who has lost houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive 100 times as much an eternal life. Rogers Park, this is the single moment that all of history is flowing towards. When all that is wrong is going to be made right, all that is broken will be made whole, all darkness and sin and pain will be purged from the world and everything will become new. Eden will return, the snow will melt, the cold will be banished, there will be no sun for Christ will be our light and the world will dazzle like we have never imagined it could to the glory of God. And the renewal of all things will only happen through the unleashed, the unstoppable power of God. Which we seen the first fruit of, the first glimpse of in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what has this power of the future got to do with our lives today? In Titus chapter 3 verse 5, Paul says this, speaking of Jesus, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. When Paul says rebirth in regards to personal salvation, he uses the same word, the same word that Christ used in reference to the rebirth of the whole universe. Paul is saying immediately, at the moment of our conversion, our old self dies and we receive a new life which contains the unleashed, the unstoppable power of the future today. And the new life of every follower of Christ contains a foretaste of the life-giving power that is someday going to make all things new. And it is this power in us by the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to do what we could not do before. When Paul was asked, why doesn't God's grace mean when we can just keep sinning? Paul says, well, actually... God's saving grace means that this is the first time that you can truly stop. And it is this power in us by the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability that we did not have before. Verse 7 says, For one who has died... And has been given a new life, loved by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, has been set free from sin. The old you that was chained to sin, unable to get traction, is dead. That person died with Christ. And the new you, by the power of the resurrection, can for the first time gain traction and sin can be told no. And righteousness can be told yes. For the first time, we have a choice. We've been given a new life with new abilities, and Paul is saying, so go, walk in the newness of your life. Winter is over. The snow is melting. Go, discover godliness. Go, discover holiness. You've got traction. You can go. 
Go on a scavenger hunt, finding wonder, discovering the beauty of God's law, which flows out of God's flawless character. Discover rivers flowing with God's heart for your life. Plant your lives by those rivers, because you know now have the fight to obey and grow and see who you will become. We are empowered today by the resurrection to start becoming who we one day will be. In preparing this message, I kept having to ask, do I really have the integrity to preach this message? Kept coming to mind were my own frustrations with sins and not cute pastor sins like getting speeding tickets because they do that too. <laughs> but bitterness, like over years, jealousy, like not being able to celebrate for people, pride. I was reading an article back and it was saying, when writers are writing a book, they should write towards the problem. And I think that applies for preaching as well. We should preach towards the problem. And the problem is that this morning, that when, all, when all is said and done and we all go home, the music's finished, the hands are down, when all is said and done, it's hard. When sin comes knocking, it's hard. And yet, from the text, from the word of God, the lie the enemy wants us to settle for believing is that it's too hard. The enemy wants us to believe that real progress isn't possible. When he knows, maybe even better than we do, that real progress is possible. In verses 12 to 13 and verse 19, Paul calls us to action. He says, let not the sin. It's an imperative. Let not the sin. Therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Paul is saying, sin is still going to try and reign over you. It's still going to talk to you like it's your master. Sin is going to check in on you to see how you're doing. To see if we've forgotten that we now have the power to say no. He's going to try and make you forget that you're in Christ. He's going to try and make you forget that you're accepted and loved and delighted in. He's going to make you think that he's on your side. But Paul is saying, don't listen. Don't let him trick you. Sin hates you. Don't let him reign and have dominion over you. He wants nothing good for your life. But how? Then he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Then in verse 19, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, present your members as slaves to righteousness. This word present, as in present yourself, means to put yourself at somebody else's disposal. It means to surrender yourself to the will of another. 
Listen to this. Sin most reigns over the areas in my life, in our lives, that we haven't presented to God, that we haven't laid down to him. Sin most reigns over areas in our lives that we haven't surrendered to the will of God. So we cling to what we want, not what he wants, saying, my life is mine, not yours. We don't hand over our future to God, so outflows anxiety and covetousness and the neglect of our family. We don't, don't hand over our wealth to God, so outflows control and greed and a workaholic. We don't hand over the fame of our own name to God, so outflows entitlement and aggression and stamping on others. We don't hand over our life's purpose, so outflows an anxiety-ridden, selfish, selfish, sense-centered pursuit of meaning. We don't hand over our kids to God, so outflows idolatry. We don't hand over our sexuality to God, so outflows whichever fantasy we Google. We don't, have, we don't hand over our pride, so outflows bitterness and gossip and backstabbing. Paul is saying progress in growing in Christ-likeness only comes when we present our lives, we lay down our lives, and we hand over our lives to God. And we say whether poverty or celibacy, whether wealth or marriage, whether biological children or spiritual children, whether we're included or excluded, whether power or weakness, whether we're known or we're forgotten, whether you use me a lot or you use me a little, I'm yours and you're enough. I will not fight your will. I will not fight your law. I'm yours. My money is yours. My career is yours. My spice is yours. My sexuality is yours. I open my life to you and for you. Rogers Park, if sin, fighting sin doesn't flow from a heart of total surrender to the will of God for our lives, everything else is just going to be behavior modification and it's going to be skin deep. But when we lay our hearts down, when we lay down our deep sense of being, when we lay down our lives for his disposal, Money no longer controls us. Our sexuality no longer defines us. Our purpose is given to us. And death is no longer scares us. Freedom. The paradoxical, paradoxically true freedom, as Paul calls it in verse 22, is becoming a slave of God. And it says what it says. <laughs> there was a little girl back in the 1800s and she was a slave and she was being sold at a market and you'll have heard of this happening but there was a woman who, who stepped forward and she bought the little girl just to set her free. So they, they cut the ropes from the little girl and the woman said, go, you're, you're free. She paid for her, you're free. But the little girl, she didn't know where to go. She had no one to, to guide her through life. She had only been known by slave masters and cruelty. So she turned to the woman and she said, Ma'am, I'm scared if I go alone, I'll turn back. 
My life has been surrounded with bitterness, cruelty, and hatred, and I fear it has seeped into my heart. The world of slavery still feels like my home. But you, ma'am, have shown me a kindness I have never known before. Would you mind, ma'am, if I followed you? I'll do whatever you ask me, because I think it's the only way I might ever become like you. And I suppose I will be known as your slave. But having seen your kindness towards me, I doubt from this day forward I will ever feel anything less than your daughter. Church, we have been set free from the reign of sin in our lives. We have been given a new life with new abilities through Christ paying on the cross for our freedom. We now have the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. To kill sinful habits and replace them with habits of holiness. And if sin still reigns over your life today, is today the day that you will trust in Jesus to set you free? To set you off on a new life with a new ability to grow in Christ-like holiness with him as your master. C.S. Lewis writes, if we let him, if we follow him, he will make the feeblest and the filthiest, filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. That, Rogers Park, is the summer ahead at the renewal of all things for all those who believe. When he will present us holy and perfect and blameless that summer. And it's coming. Today is still spring. There's still a, a nip in the air. There's still snow on the ground. Sin still calls to us. But Rogers Park winter is no longer. The kingdom of God has dawned in our hearts. So go, walk in the newness of life. Fight it, run towards it. Discover the beauty of God's law. Don't ask, does that mean I can disobey it? Discover the rivers flowing with God's heart for your life. Plant your life by those rivers because you now have the fight in you to grow and see yourself becoming who one day you will be. Rogers Park, real progress is possible. And that is how the world is going to see our good works and they're going to glorify our master. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you did not just save us and give us a get-out-of-jail-free card, but God, you by your spirit have entered into us and giving us, given us a power, God, to be transformed, to be renewed. So that, God, we might walk more and more every day in Christ-likeness, God. God, may we see that as the fight of our lives. Fashion us, God, for that. Compel us into that, God. May every other fight that we think we're fighting, God, be put on the back burner. And we, we want to spend our final days on this earth as holy, as sanctified as possible, in contentment and joy, knowing our Savior. May that be our heart. Crush the idols, God, in our lives of fame and money and control. 
God, may we surrender our lives to you, knowing, God, that you are a good, good master who desires better for us than we even desire for ourselves. May we trust in you, trust in your law. In Jesus' name.